0: Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com/specialoffer. All lowercase. That's Shopify.com/specialoffer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and this episode is about different types of nomadism, the subsistence methods of nomads, and the characteristics that can lead a group of people to be defined as nomadic. It's a bit of Nomads 101, um, but I think it's important to define who we talk about when we talk about nomads and why. So broadly defined, there are three types of nomads, traders, hunter-gatherers, and herders, also called pastoralists. And this sounds simple enough, but of course, right off the bat, we are getting into a niche academic dispute, the best kind, which is that depending on who you ask, there's some disagreement over which of those categories constitutes the real nomads. So if you ask someone who studies pastoral nomadism, they might tell you that pastoralists are the only real nomads or true nomads or pure nomads. And I find this to be a pretty unproductive distinction uh, that's based in some pretty opaque anthropological hair splitting. And this is my podcast and I do what I want. So I'm going to be considering and talking about all three types of nomads as equally deserving of being called nomadic. But you are more than welcome to fight with me about this. That being said, I think part of the reason that some in the anthropological community want to narrow the scope of the definition of nomadism a bit is because that label is sometimes too widely applied. So for example, sometimes all hunter-gatherers are called nomadic, or all indigenous peoples like Native Americans or Australian Aboriginals are assumed to have a nomadic quality, or that all ancient peoples prior to the formation of large cities lived nomadically. And those sorts of assumptions about and depictions of the past tend to distort and do a disservice to our understanding of both actual nomadism as well as of non-nomads who are sometimes mistakenly painted with that brush. So what are the criteria by which we can define and identify nomadism? So one is that a nomad is anyone who leads a mobile way of life by moving around frequently. So some nomads, depending on their needs and the season, may relocate as often as every day or every few days, while others, again, depending on their needs and on the season, may move on semi-annually or seasonally. And another criterion that isn't 100% universally applicable but I think is often still useful to keep in mind is that nomads generally tend to live in temporary and portable housing whether that be tents or simple huts that can be disassembled relocated and reassembled in a new location or for example a caravan or a boat that also acts as the nomad's form of transportation Now, I want to stress that this doesn't necessarily mean that nomads never use or inhabit or construct permanent buildings. Um, It's one of my number one pet peeves when people talk about nomads and permanent architecture as being mutually exclusive. But as I now talk more about the different types of nomadism and what they look like in practice, we'll see how temporary habitation is usually the most practical and resource efficient for a nomad. However, I look forward to exploring examples of nomads visiting and using and living in permanent buildings in future episodes, and I hope you do too. Okay, back on topic. Let's start by looking at pastoral nomads. So these are the nomads most likely to be described as the real nomads, and they are indeed what we tend to picture when we Think about nomads. So, pastoralist nomads are the yak herders of Tibet. They are the reindeer herders of Scandinavia and Siberia. They're the camel herders of the Near East. Hopefully, you're starting to notice a pattern and to figure out that a pastoralist is somebody who raises and herds a certain type or types of animal. And the type of animal in question is completely dependent on the climate and the animal's adaptation to traveling long distances. So all the animals that are herded by nomadic pastoralists are hoofed animals, also known as ungulates. That's a science word that I learned for this episode. So those include donkeys, goats, camels, sheep, horses, reindeer, cattle, yak, etc. You get the idea. Most nomadic pastoralists will have herds consisting of multiple types of animals. So, for example, the Bedouin or Mongolian nomads will often have herds consisting of sheep, goats, and horses, if not more. But the Sami people, who are indigenous to northern Sweden, Norway, Finland, and Russia, are the only universally mono specialized nomadic pastoralists, which means that they only ever herd one animal, reindeer because other domesticated and herdable animals aren't capable of living in an Arctic climate. But in general, and where possible, it's preferable for a pastoralist to diversify a bit by owning and herding multiple types of animals. And in nomadic societies, usually the wealthiest nomads will be the ones with the largest and most diversified herds. So what does it actually look like in practice to own and to herd a flock of animals? Basically, a nomadic pastoralist owns a herd of domesticated animals, and they migrate along with that herd along a seasonal migratory route. So the principle is, in winter, you want to be in a warmer climate, and in the summer, in a cooler climate. So the Bedouin in the Near East will spend the summer in mountainous areas, where it's cooler, and migrate to lowland areas in the winter, for example. And then along the way, they're looking for pasture lands and grazing areas for their flocks, as well as, and this is crucial in arid climates like that of the Middle East, they're looking for water for themselves and for their flocks. Pastoralists move frequently to avoid overgrazing and to find the right temperature zone for themselves and for their herds. It may sound pretty excessive to move your herds around as much as every few days, but imagine you and your family have a herd of a couple hundred goats, which you very well might. And then imagine you're traveling with a tribe of other families who also have their own herds of a couple hundred goats if you're all pasturing in the same place, that area is going to become overgrazed very quickly with long-lasting environmental consequences. So nomads have to move around a lot to avoid upsetting that delicate ecological balance and the tragedy of the commons. So I mentioned wealthy nomads earlier. So you might be wondering, how does a nomad actually earn money? And the answer is mostly self-explanatory in that a nomadic pastoralist lives off of their herds by eating their meat and drinking their milk and using their hair and fur and skin for clothing and tents. But pastoralists don't just use these animal products for themselves, but they also sell them. Maybe to other nomads, but much more commonly at markets to people living in towns and cities. So pastoralists are effectively traders in a way too, because even though theoretically it's possible for a nomad to sustain themselves just off of the animal byproducts of their herds, in reality it's not. A pastoralist needs weapons and cooking utensils and grain and other essentials that they can't produce themselves. So access to markets has been vital to nomads throughout history as places where they can bring their products to sell and to trade with with craftspeople and agriculturalists. Then another question you might have is why be a pastoralist? Doesn't it kind of sound like a lot of work for not a lot of reward? And the short answer is yes, that's correct. Pastoralism is a hard lifestyle, And the answer to why some people in a given area have remained nomadic while others around them have settled down and started farming and built cities is a tricky one to answer because it varies a lot by region and culture and time period. And we tend to think of pastoral nomadism as this sort of ancient primordial thing and that people have just stayed nomadic throughout millennia because it's their culture and tradition, which... There might be a kernel of truths to that, um, but in future episodes, I'll talk about examples of peoples who have become nomadic much more recently, like in the past 300 to 500 years. Um, So the best I think I can offer in the way of a general answer is that until pretty recently, until the Industrial Revolution, in some parts of the world, pastoralism was, if not exactly easy, at least definitely not harder than being a farmer in, say, the Arabian Peninsula or the Atlas Mountains or the Mongolian Steppe or the Tibetan Plateau. Even though it may sound kind of counterintuitive, in practice, the harsher a climate is, the more conducive it can be to the lifestyle of nomadic pastoralism, which is one reason that nomadic pastoralism was for a long time the dominant way of life in some regions and is still practiced in many areas today. Places like the Americas or Western Europe are for the most part temperate enough to be able to support a multitude of subsistence practices like extremely diversified agriculture and farming, which is less so the case in climates like the Siberian tundra or the Sinai Desert. But now you might also be wondering, okay, so why aren't more people pastoralists? Isn't it more environmentally friendly than how the vast majority of us live today. And the short answer to that is no, unfortunately, not really. Because remember what I said before about pastoralists and the risk of overgrazing. Basically, there's not enough pasture land in the world to support everyone and their pastoral herds without the risk of severe overgrazing. Pastoralism is only possible in specific terrains and in specific climatic zones. And there's only so far that the boundaries of those climatic zones can be expanded before they break. And there have been times throughout history when large numbers of people in a given area have converted to pastoralism. So they've gone from being farmers to herding animals because of climatic changes or economic pressures. And this always creates hardships for both the new and the old nomads, because the environment is just not capable of supporting that influx of people and livestock living off of the relatively small amount of available pasture land. And then also, like I've already said, nomads need settled peoples near them who can provide goods and services that a mobile nomadic society can't. So a pastoralist lives in symbiosis not just with nature, but with the larger society around them. The second type of nomadism I'm going to talk about is hunter-gatherers, Hunting and gathering is one of humanity's oldest subsistence methods dating back to the Pleistocene almost 2 million years ago. And then up until around 12,000 years ago, in the beginning of the Neolithic or the first agricultural revolution, it was the only human subsistence method. And then as agriculture developed and put pressure on hunter-gatherer lands, the vast majority of hunter-gatherers converted to agriculture although there are still plenty of people throughout the world who continue to live as hunter-gatherers. But sort of like with pastoral nomads before, the only parts of the world where hunting and gathering is still widely practiced are those parts where it's a viable and efficient alternative to farming. So namely in arid desert regions or in tropical forests. And again, like I talked about with pastoral nomads, basically since the Industrial Revolution, hunting and gathering has come even more under pressure and has become increasingly untenable as a lifestyle due to changing environmental conditions and the disappearance of animals in the wild. I feel like we probably all learned about hunting and gathering in elementary school and have at least an idea of what it entails, so I won't belabor it. Uh, But basically, hunting and gathering could more concisely be summed up as foraging or searching out wild food resources, both plant and animal. Like pastoralists, hunter-gatherers tend to move around seasonally because wild animals also migrate seasonally and different plants are in season at different times of the year. So the key difference between pastoralists and hunter-gatherers is that pastoralists own domesticated animals, which they migrate with. And hunter-gatherers also migrate alongside animals, but without the domestication and ownership of them. The key word in there is ownership, because hunter-gatherers own so little, even in comparison to pastoralists They have even less leverage and power when it comes to interactions with sedentary peoples. They have very little to trade, although this is sort of okay because hunter-gatherers, at least in theory, don't need to trade with settled peoples because hunting and gathering was for millennia practiced without the accompaniment of agriculture or farmed products. But what it means in the real world today where powerful and sedentary empires do exist is that hunter-gatherers are extremely vulnerable to pressures and conquests and land grabs from the outside world because they have nothing really to bargain with. And this has also meant, I think, that hunter-gatherers tend to get short shrift within the study of nomadism because hunter-gatherers, unlike pastoralists, have never given rise to great empires, whereas from among pastoralists, you get peoples like the Scythians and the Turks and the Mongols. And from hunter-gatherers, you don't really get these sexy grand narratives of the rise and fall of empire that historians love. But I think they're still really interesting to study and can tell us a lot about history and cultures. Much like pastoral nomads, hunter-gatherers live in tents or huts that can be disassembled, transported, and reassembled in a new place. Or they build their dwellings entirely anew in each location, or in some cases they would make use of natural phenomena like caves for habitation. It's important to mention that although most hunter-gatherers are nomadic or at least semi-nomadic, hunting-gathering is not inherently a nomadic practice and some hunter gatherers, for example, in the Pacific Northwest of the United States and Canada, or in some parts of Russia, live in areas with sufficient biodiversity that they have access to a wide enough variety of plants and animals, both for nutrition and for materials, within a small enough radius around them that they can live a more or less fully sedentary lifestyle. On the subject of temporary nomadic habitation, I'll be discussing different types of nomadic dwellings in future episodes, but if this is something that you're interested in and are interested in seeing visually, there's a great YouTube channel called Nomad Architecture that has really interesting videos showing different types of nomadic housing being constructed from bamboo huts of hunter-gatherers in Tanzania to the tents of sheep herders in Iran, and I highly recommend you check it out. Okay, back on track. Let's move to the third category of nomads, traders. This is a controversial category and probably the trickiest to pin down and define of th- these three categories. And by some historians and anthropologists, it's not accepted as a real type of nomadism. And even the terminology that I'm using here, trader nomad, is sort of my own terminology because there isn't a widely accepted or used term for these type of nomads. In English, they're sometimes called tinkers, which is considered offensive, um, but they're also sometimes called travelers, like the Irish or Scottish travelers, or peripatetic nomads. I find these terms a bit unhelpful because traveling and peripatetic is sort of inherent to all types of nomadism. So I like the word trader for this category, although it's also not completely without potential for confusion, because as I've said, other types of nomads practice and rely on trading as well. But the difference is that trader nomads are nomads who don't practice any kind of hunting or herding or animal husbandry. Because they live in and travel between towns and cities, plying some sort of trade, like metalworking and metal repair, or the making and selling of other types of handicrafts. And they tend to live and travel in caravans and wagons that were usually drawn by horses or other draft animals until the advent of the motor. Trader nomads are primarily found in India, Turkey, Afghanistan, Iran, and Europe, um, so, for example, these are the Roma people who have lived throughout Europe since the Middle Ages, the Irish and Scottish travelers, like I mentioned before. There's a group of trader nomads indigenous to Spain called the Mercheros, who are also known for making and selling metalworked goods. There are small groups of trader nomads in the Netherlands and Norway. So just about every country in Europe has some presence of nomadic peoples, although many of them don't practice full-scale nomadism today. And there's also a diaspora of European nomadic peoples, primarily of the Roma, to both North and South America. Because of their persecution in Europe throughout the Middle Ages and into the modern period, the largest communities of Roma and their descendants today are actually in the United States and Brazil. I think it's from communities like the Roma that we have ended up with these cultural stereotypes of nomads as sort of shiftless and driftless, Uh, because to an outside observer in the Middle Ages, the movements of the Roma probably did seem kind of random. And it's true that the movements of the trader nomads are not rigidly prescribed by seasonal forces and by the environment like the movements of pastoralists and hunter-gatherers. But the movements of trader nomads were often still defined by outside forces, namely by the settled peoples around them. So, for example, when the Roma first migrated to Europe, probably from India, in the Middle Ages, they probably did want to settle down and ply a trade in one place but they faced such persecution from the people that they encountered in Europe that constant mobility became a necessity. They were hated for their dark skin and foreign languages and strange clothing and customs, so the Roma were prohibited from purchasing land or joining guilds, so the option they were left with was to move from town to town, offering goods for sale, doing light repair work, acting as seasonal farm labor, performing and offering entertainment. This is where the stereotyped image of the gypsy fortune teller comes from. Uh, And they were most successful economically in small, remote communities distant from large markets, where they carved out a niche for themselves by bringing services directly to townspeople who occasionally needed to buy new cooking utensils or have their shoes repaired. But of course, then there's only so much money that the Roma and other trader nomads would have been able to make from those small remote communities. So much like pastoralists and their herds, they would need to move on once the well had run dry. And then in many cases, also, they were run out of town by townspeople who disliked and distrusted the Roma and the stereotypes that came with them of criminality and vagrancy and witchcraft. The trader nomads have been heavily discriminated against throughout their history, in large part because of their proximity to sedentary peoples, because they live in towns and make their living off of sedentary peoples. And even though when we hear nomadic we think it entails a greater degree of freedom and autonomy, trader nomads don't actually have that because they're fully dependent on access to settled peoples who need and can pay for the services they offer and goods they sell. So trader nomads don't really have that semi-self-sufficiency that pastoralists have, let alone the full self-sufficiency that hunter-gatherers can have. And I've already talked a bit in this episode about sedentaries and settled peoples and the varying degrees to which nomadic peoples rely on them. And this is really the question in the study of nomadic peoples, and actually in the history of non-nomadic peoples, is how those two groups have interacted with each other throughout history. What is the difference between them? How do they interact? What are their relationships? And this brings us to the final category of nomad in the title of this episode, which is Other. And there is officially no other nomadic category, and I don't mean this as a sort of catch-all for nomadic peoples who don't fit neatly into one of the three former categories – But what I want to convey is the point that very few nomadic groups, especially in the present day, fit neatly into one of those three aforementioned categories. You can have nomads who used to be hunter-gatherers and converted to pastoralism, or vice versa, and where elements of both hunting and gathering and pastoralism might still be present, Uh, Within a nomadic group or even within the same tribe or even within the same family, you can have people practicing different levels or types of nomadism. I've mentioned semi-nomads a few times, which can mean a variety of things depending on the context. But this can be, for example, a pastoralist who still practices limited seasonal migrations with livestock, but also has a sort of home base where they cultivate crops Or a semi-nomad can also be, for example, in India, certain castes that much like the Roma in Europe are heavily discriminated against and excluded from the workforce and are effectively homeless make their living by begging, which often entails a degree of mobility and moving from place to place. So there can be many different types of nomads that don't always neatly huddle under the same umbrella, and there can also be degrees of nomadism within the lifespan of a single person. They may live more or less nomadically, and it's those nuances and sort of complicated areas that I'm looking forward to exploring in future episodes. So on that note, congratulations on making it to the end of this long and somewhat technical episode. I will be back soon with some hopefully exciting new material. I'm kicking off a short series on ancient nomads and starting with an episode about the ancient Arabs and what we know about their nomadic practices and lifestyles. So stay tuned for that. As always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, you can get in touch with me by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com. That's all one word, digitalnomadspod at gmail. And if you'd like, you can also follow me on Twitter at nomads underscore pod, where I'll be posting episode updates as well as my research sources for each episode, maps, photos, and videos, and all that fun stuff. Thanks so much for listening.